three of us would like to try to answer some of the many questions that were left in the bell. Um, We'll take turns and maybe amplify what one another says. And because there were so many, we may not get to yours, but hopefully there'll be things that are useful to you. First question. My practice has been in the way of Upandita's teaching, slowing down to see and be mindful of every microscopic moment. Your way seems a bit broader, and I've been trying to practice accordingly. I'm having difficulty adjusting, and my concentration has not developed as quickly, although the practice feels easeful and mindful with no struggle except in the comparing mind. Do you have some advice for me? Thank you. Um, The way that we are practicing is a combination of concentration and mindfulness practice, or maybe with three elements, mindfulness, concentration, and compassion or loving-kindness. And when we emphasize concentration, to get very, very concentrated, not have the mind move, it can go to some quite deep levels, but it also can raise a lot of struggle. Or it's possible to get concentrated and not necessarily so wise. The key element in the practice that we're offering is the practice of mindfulness itself, of mindful presence. Because it is through mindful presence that wisdom grows most directly and deeply. The wisdom that sees that things cannot be grasped or possessed, that notices the play of experience, that understands body and mind and how they arise in consciousness. The wisdom that understands how we get caught and how we're free. If we're making a great effort to concentrate while it's worthwhile in meditation, that alone can sidetrack us from seeing the way things are. And so we've chosen to present the teachings in a kind of middle pathway, if you will, of, yes, developing concentration, but having it rest in a basis of mind. Can you comment on the words of one of the great wise ones? There's no isness like slow isness. <laughs> I think that speaks for itself. <laughs> Speaking of Upandita-style practice, <laughs> which tends to get very slowed down. And there, there's some value. There's, there's actually quite a bit of value in slowing down. If you haven't tried it, we highly recommend it. It's all exploration. Find out what happens when you slow down. Find out when you 
do get very concentrated and you will learn. So in continuing a little bit about concentration, here's here's a question. Last night Eugene said meditators worry about not getting concentrated on retreat. So questions about concentration. I hope he didn't make you worry (laughs) needlessly. Uh, How do we get more concentrated? Isn't concentration also impermanent? (laughs) Whoever this wrote this is on the right track. If so, when one is deeply concentrated, how does one stay that way? Or does one? Please talk about getting, cultivating concentration. Well, that's a very good question because it's true that we do cultivate concentration and yes, it is impermanent. Concentration is very dependent on conditions. It's dependent on having the, the silence, the stillness, the, the, the ability to focus over a long period of time to cultivate that one-pointedness and steadiness of mind. That's why it's very hard to do in the course of one's daily life. It doesn't happen as easily when we are so distracted. In this kind of environment, this is an ideal condition for cultivating concentration. But being dependent on conditions, it can also get lost really easily. And some of you experience that during the transition Those of you who've been here for a month experienced that when all us new folks came in and were being so distracting to your practice. Some of you lost your concentration then because the conditions changed and then concentration can easily get lost. So, um, so, Concentration is that steadiness and one-pointedness of mind. And we do this by cultivating the breath, by bringing our attention back over and over again to the breathing and then opening our attention to sounds, to sensations, to thoughts, still cultivating enough concentration to actually connect with what is present. So this, this momentum gets going on retreat, and by now I think many of you are experiencing that, that sense of some, a momentum building inside of concentration. And it's very wonderful because it helps us to actually connect more deeply with what is present. But it is fragile. So... Mm, I think I'll take this instead. I was going to stay on the same line, but I think uh, I'm going to move it here a little. And it says, the food is so good here that it interferes with my sense of renunciation. (laughs) It's by far the best of any retreat center I've visited. Why did you decide to make it so good? (laughs) 
and being gone, you know, walking into the retreat center coming up and seeing kind of the deer hanging out up here and just the sheer um, beauty and awe of just walking in here um, and realizing this whole, this whole, everything we're sitting in right here is really based on people's metta. You know, it is this incredible amount of loving kindness. Every little detail, uh, just to me, the sound system, the lighting, uh, everything has been uh, so carefully um, given attention to. And I hope that the fruit, not as a distraction, but as, as a way of encouraging you, really, uh, to use what's here, and not in the sense of uh, turning away, uh, but finding inside yourself, you know, that the world, the outside world is a complement. And the renunciation, it happens inside ourselves. If we realize that um, there's all those stories you tell, uh, all these things that you could go off on, but the renunciation is here, saying, no, not now, I'm here. And I'm giving myself the full benefit of, uh, in, in a lifetime, this is a pretty short time. Uh, and really uh, taking that to heart, and knowing that there's so many other hearts that are supporting this practice of being here. What he's saying is that the cooks can't help themselves. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And that it's important to learn to be mindful of pleasant as well as unpleasant. (laughs) Truly. And that maybe there's enough dukkha in the meditation. <laughs> hmm. What are the causative factors for emptiness arising? I might change the question to say, what are the causative factors? for the experience of emptiness to arise, or the awareness of it, because things are empty of self or substantiality all along, but we get caught in the sense of permanence and of separateness and so forth. And the causative factors are the very qualities that we are training, nourishing, abiding in in the retreat. Mindfulness itself is the gateway to the void or the deathless. By paying attention, we begin to see that experiences arise for a time and then vanish, leaving no trace. Letting go is a causative factor for emptiness. When we're holding on and trying to get somewhere, I want this sitting to be that way, or I want this walking to happen, or that and so forth, we are lost in the sense of ourself and the goal. That too is an empty process, it will disappear. When we let go and see, oh, 
that's just the wanting mind, or that's just desire arising. Again, the empty nature of phenomena shows itself. Um, spaciousness is a causative quality for emptiness, that spaciousness being and allowing the sense of ease. Let the world show itself as it is. All of those help us to resume our connection to the emptiness, the ground of emptiness that's present. So a related related, um, question. Uh, Can you please talk about the difference between concentration and emptiness? Which, again, is in the same direction. We could say, in some sense, that emptiness is what is, and concentration is a cultivation of a one-pointedness and steadiness of mind. It's fabricated. It's something that we actually bring into being. We cultivate it. And that, too, can help us open emptiness, to penetrate through the appearance of solidity and permanence into this more connected and fluid understanding of reality, which is emptiness. So concentration can also be an aid in opening to that aspect of our experience, which we call empty. It's actually both empty and full, because it's out of that which every, out of that everything comes forth. So the emptiness is sometimes, um, it's that paradoxical place where there's nothing and everything all at once. Emptiness here, emptiness there. (laughs) Such a great practice of not needing it to be any way. And even the words, I think sometimes I think of this word and I try to uh, bring it into form and I realize it's really, how do I not bring it into form? sitting here. And so there's simply, there's the body, there's the awareness of here. Great stuff. So, is the idea of personal, quote, progress in meditation practice merely an example of misplaced linear thinking? Can we really, quote, get better than we already are. And I was thinking, is this something that to be answered? Or is this really so much I, I see in questions is sometimes, is this something we just keep exploring? Um, and in a sense, there's one side of this that says, oh, uh, I have a, a goal of going somewhere. I come here with an intention and a goal. 
Uh, but what's actually being taught here is that somehow uh, by being here and sitting and uh, creating this balance between enough attention and concentration and uh, relaxation uh, that um, things unfold, they happen. And then we don't look to, we don't need to put some kind of qualification on where we're going. So I think sometimes uh, it's difficult with this idea of progress. That somehow I have to have this progress be better. Then really owning uh, the kind of fullness of uh, who you are and how it is right now. Okay. And even, I think what's one of the beauties here is the thing about sort of letting go of what pleasantness or unpleasantness is. And looking, uh, using that word emptiness, or I also like the word peace a lot. Looking for, in the center of things, just the peace that's available in the presence. So that's the end of progress. I grew up in a strict Protestant church without symbols of any kind, even without clergy. In my early days of practice at Spirit Rock there were no symbols either, but over the years many altars, statues have appeared along with them bowing and even prostrations. I am troubled or confused. I feel Buddhism is a non-theistic faith and the Buddha never gave him um, gave himself divinity. Who or what is being bowed to and who is bowing? A wonderful question. First a couple of symbolic answers. Sometimes when you go into a great old Japanese temple, maybe I talked about this in one of my Dharma talks, um, or some great old Thai temple, there'll be these little tiny doors that you have to go through. And I I used to wonder, you know, is that because people were much smaller in the old days? (laughs) But actually, um, there's a, a, a symbolic purpose to it. You have to bow your head to go into the sacred space. That is to say, you have to go from your own intentions and ideas and goals and ambitions and plans and so forth and release some of that to enter the sacredness that is actually present already. Um, A second image to offer you. A couple of years ago when we had a big international teachers gathering at Spirit Rock. Um, The Dalai Lama was here, a number of Asian masters as well as Western teachers. Um, One of the other teachers who came was Mahagosananda, who was the Gandhi of Cambodia, this very beautiful monk and teacher that I've studied with, who's led peace marches through Cambodia and many parts of the world. And he and the Dalai Lama are of are an old and deep friendship. Um, anyway, the Dalai Lama's um, car pulled up, and he got out, and people were there to greet him. 
And kind of by elder, in some way by elders, Mahagosananda was one of the first people to greet the Dalai Lama. And they each started to bow to the other. And the Dalai Lama bowed, and then Gosananda bowed lower, and then the Dalai Lama bowed lower, and the Gosananda bowed lower. They were each trying to bow lower than the other one. No, you, after you. Finally, their heads touched kind of near the ground, and they just stayed that way for a little while. And we have a picture of it in gratitude. It was the most beautiful thing to observe. The question of who is bowing, I will leave for you to answer. And who is walking, who is asking a question, who is hearing these words just now. Um, but rather than bowing to the Buddha as a divine being, these are really archetypal symbols of awakening itself. And some people love the art and love the symbolism. Some people don't or have had problems with symbolism being forced upon them. Um, But there is a way in which as we become more open and more deeply aware and more truly present that there arises a spontaneous gratitude awe, reverence for life itself, and perhaps the most universal expression of this in some way is a bow. So it's not even a bow to someone, but it's a bow to something that's sacred and and, uh, mysterious and uh, wondrous and ever-present. I was just going to add to that that I think of the first years that um, sort of at least for myself started teaching there was uh, really the, the practice I remember of one of the things was at the end of the sitting not to bow and um, I'd sort of come out of Asia with those what uh, that deep reverence and I realized in a lot of ways that um, this process of teaching here has really been a growth, starting from zero ground. And hopefully that the education here is that these are symbols and that they represent something internal for us and that we each begin internalizing that in some way and therefore these don't become um, uh, symbols that become objects of uh, recognition in ourselves from our practice and that uh, we can start you know bowing from our hearts and having symbols around without getting uh, uh, having been programmed before lost in the symbols of something else but just for what they are and a little PS related to this note I can connect to metta when I initiate the practice each morning but I feel resistant during guided metta practice in the afternoon's help. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't feel inclined to bow, don't bow. Really honor, respect where you are. And if the words of metta don't fit you, 
let go of those words and find the phrases and words that work for you. So it's really coming back to honor yourself. Yeah, I would add also in my own experience, I've gone through many different phases of um, wanting to bow, not wanting to bow, resisting bowing, must bow, love to bow. But really, I remember my first trip to Nepal and how, how completely disarming and delightful it was to be out in the countryside and meeting people on the path and just saying namaste and feeling like as an American tourist, you know, in this foreign land, that I was actually making such a lovely momentary connection, just heart to heart, in that moment of just, I bow, the Buddha in me bows to the Buddha in you, or the God within me bows to the God within you, and just this immediate big smile and this lovely way of meeting people. So that gave me a clue as to how to bow to the Buddha. It was like, oh, Buddha, I see you, and I recognize you. How wonderful we are here together. You know, that kind of feeling that I began to take into my practice. But it comes. You know, there are times I haven't wanted to bow. That's fine, too. Okay. A question. I'm confused about two messages I seem to have heard from the teachers. Firstly, that our true nature is compassion. True. And secondly, that we have no self. Also true. And then the question, we do not have any true nature at all. How can both be true? Also true. Also true. Language, language, you hear these words, it's all so confusing, self, no self, true nature, Buddha nature. Um, It's hard to sort it out, isn't it? Um, Actually, they go together, and it's this paradoxical quality of Buddhist teaching that takes a while to get used to, because... It's not linear and rational and logical and compartmentalized like a lot of our uh, philosophy in the West is. It's much more intuitive and inclusive. So somehow, mysteriously, there is this emptiness of self, meaning that who we thought we, who we think we are, is actually a mistaken perception. It has always been a mistaken perception. It has never been true. So it's not like we are asking you to let go of something that you once were to become something you're not, but rather only to recognize that who you thought you were has never been true, has never been the truth, will never be the truth, no possibility of it ever being. Uh, So... It's the recognition of 
of this misperception that we are referring to when we say no self. It is also true that in this letting go of this misperception, we find we are connected. We are totally connected to life, to everyone else, to every living being, that there is no possibility of being separate. So the two actually go together. When we open to no self, we are opening to this connection, which we call compassion, which is who we are. That's it. How do we do prayer, devotion, the practice of gratitude? How does the the practice of gratitude fit into vipassana? I practice these in my own way, sometimes as I sit, but here, but have no idea if they have a place in vipassana. So this is kind of go back around again, or connected to... I was thinking about how this practice in its fundamental uh, kind of place is so simple. And it's, uh, we use words, you know, no self emptiness, <laughs> all these uh, to point um, directly at the fact that we're sitting here sort of, uh, in a sense, dissolving ourselves. Uh, who we think we are, uh, to a place of really deep trust. And uh, I don't, you know, I was thinking, what else are we doing here? Well, it's, this is it, we're beginning to trust. And it's not, uh, it's not in this out here or us up here, uh, but it's about something that uh, you know in yourself, this kind of wakefulness. And that as you begin to trust uh, this wakefulness, you begin to see it in the world around you, uh, in the people and the symbols and the forms. And with that, then there's this sense of, uh, from that place of trust, there's this sense of, uh, really, as I see, is devotion. And I know just this is just personally for myself, uh, this Buddha Dharma Sangha is is a lifesaver. It's like uh, an inner tube out there of recognition that uh, it has given me this this confidence to trust the present. And with that, uh, there are certainly gratitude and thankfulness. And each of us can find different ways of uh, not in a, um, that's what I guess what we're not trying to do is create some kind of form, but for you to find from that trust what moves you and can support your practice in trusting yourself here you know, without things. 
knowing that ultimately there is um, our propensity for confusion and our ability to awaken. And so that ability to awaken can uh, become uh, something that you acknowledge daily or moment to moment or, you know, I was thinking of, uh, I'll tell a little story here. I went to see one of my teachers, Soltram Alions, anyway, our teacher we had in Kathmandu and he was a little boy of four years old. He went to see him, he was in kind of playing with some Tonkin trucks. This is it. Swaimbunath in Kathmandu, uh, the monkey temple there. And we went up to see him and and, um, there was a a Tibetan who who was there who was the child's uh, um, tutor. And he was illiterate. He um, had spent 12 years prostrating himself around Mein Kailas, uh, the sort of the sacred mountain in sort of northeastern Tibet there, uh, for 12 years. And he had prostrated all the way around the mountain, just kept going, and uh, fed by the pilgrims who came. And he was, he, there was no mind. little four-year-old child, there was no separation. No. That whoever this, who he'd been, was no longer there. And there was a, 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 this incredible childlike connection. Uh, and to me, that was the epitome of practice and devotion, that somehow he had uh, separated out and had that innocence that uh, we all know we have it there. It's just that our complexity kind of covers it over. And this man had totally uh, taken that away from himself. Uh, It was the most touching uh, experience in seeing that that kind of uh, innocent connection. And we think, oh, well, a four-year-old child taken away from his mother and which is, I, I agree, is, is kind of a, would be a sad thing, but then I saw who had taken her place. Yeah. So. so, to go, to go from that space of innocence and openness to some of the content of mind, Uh, a couple of questions of the things that appear Um, how to handle creative inspirations during meditation do we take time to write them down or merely note them I call them creativity attacks right and you're sitting here and a whole novel or a you know orchestration or a opera come through for the most part you just bow and say ah creativity and so forth and let them go because as we open, um, there's, a, there's a, a, a gateway to the fountain of creativity, which is life itself. And these will appear, and 
disappear and then more creativity will come. It's endless. However, if there's something that just seems so cool that you don't want to let it go, you can write a few sentences down just to remind yourself that's probably enough. Not all the libretto and everything, just a little bit. Second question related. What would you suggest for someone who has had Cry You a Song by Jethro Tull in his head for nine days? Perhaps a music appreciation class? What's interesting about songs that come in images when they repeat themselves, when they're the top ten tunes of patterns of thought or songs, The songs are a little bit like dreams, the particular ones that come. There's actually a meaning, there's a language of the symbol. And so, um, maybe a simple question to ask, rather than to try to get rid of it or whatever, is to just feel into what is this song asking me to accept or be aware of. And if there's something connected with that song, you'll notice. I guess I'll do a third one similar to it, short. What do you suggest to work with Vipassana romances? Um, Have you tried mindfulness? (laughs) (laughs) If you don't, then it will proliferate. And we had the extreme case of someone at a three-month retreat at IMS, who saw this person, you know, this guy over there, and knew he was the perfect man for her, and all the Vipassana romance, and so forth, and was a very good practitioner, so didn't interfere or do anything. But at the end of the retreat, when there's an integration period, she decided, all right, now I can let him know, and she wrote this beautiful long note about how she'd been observing him, and what, how he deeply he touched her, and maybe they could go off, you know, the whole story, right? And left it in his uh, Birkenstocks, in his shoes. It turned out, however, that there was another man who had a pair of Birkenstocks identical, and she left it in the wrong man's shoes. This is a true story, right? So this guy got it, and he said, oh my God, she's in love with me. What this is, what I'm describing, is the content of mind that appears in this great space. You know. So Vipassana Romance comes, you can just name it, Vipassana Romance, bow to it. And my own experience, actually, when Vipassana Romance or erotic imagery would come, I had all kinds of sexual imagery and so forth. When I really paid attention for myself, it usually came when I was lonely. I'd be sitting there and not aware that I was lonely, and all of a sudden I'd be fabricating this whole relationship. And then when I became still enough to notice, now what's going on when this keeps coming back? Oh yeah, I'm, I'm actually experiencing this loneliness. And then I had to sit with that, and then all kinds of things opened because I was simply able to be mindful in a quieter way with that energy as it
Also, don't follow them around. <laughs> <laughs> or at least know the size of their Birkenstocks. <laughs> <laughs> don't seek them out. It's best to limit contact. It's also interesting to notice the power of fantasy. Because the truth is, if you actually knew this person and had to go on a 10-hour road trip with them or something, <laughs> it probably would be a little different. We have such, uh, a lot of our desire is, is really rooted in, in fantasy. The fantasy of fulfillment rather than the reality of dealing with another human being. So, let's see. Um, how, let's see. How, at what point do we gain insight about those thoughts that really trigger us? How do we give space and unpack the truth? We often, uh, thought is a whole um, area of practice that we'll be talking more about as the retreat goes on. It's, it's really the first thing to say is just recognizing the incredible um, power we give our thoughts, the incredible tendency we have to be identified with our thinking and to believe our thought. So one of the first great teachings of practice is that we can actually cultivate a relationship with thought where we're not believing every thought that comes along, where we're not so identified with our thinking. It's an amazing shift in your practice to begin to cultivate cultivate this kind of knowing of thought as opposed to believing it and being identified with it, seeing a thought as a thought. So there will be thoughts that trigger us, you know, you're sitting, many thoughts can easily be let go of, you know, thoughts about the weather, thoughts about the building, whatever. And then one thought will come along that just absolutely grabs you and you're gone. It's usually a thought that has some uh, relevance to me. You know, it's kind of personal and we believe it. So that's the first hook is that we think this thought is about us and we think that it's telling us something important about us. So we need to kind of um, see that it, it too is just a thought. We can also notice the kinds of thoughts that tend to trigger us. Are they thoughts of the past? Are they thoughts of, um, about a certain person in our life? Or are they thoughts about a decision that we have to make? Are they thoughts about uh, worry kinds of thoughts? You can begin to notice what kind of thought is it that seems to capture us and take us away? For the most part, on the way it 
seems to unfold on retreats is that the insight that we need in our lives comes not from thinking about things so directly, but it, it kind of comes in the back door. The insights that we need seem to come more from our willingness to let go of thinking and discover what can happen in that space so that the insights come often when we're not trying to find them, when we're not looking for them. It's another one of these paradoxes of practice. It's kind of just let the thoughts be for now and trust that when you need the, when the, when the insight is needed, it will be there. That you will know what to do. You will know how to handle a certain situation. Let it come to you rather than you having to make it happen by thinking about it. Another piece of letting go. I was going to add my favorite Vipassana mantra um, of um, just simply, it's been such a great help for me on the cushion is just this mantra of not now. You know, when this stuff comes up and starts holding us for a little while and just somehow just being able to say, not now, and coming back and uh, finding your wholeness because it's so, in some ways, the thoughts, it's, uh, we can go off from these things that isolate us so much. And yet, we have the power to say, not now, and come back and uh, use our time uh, as wisely as we can here. So it might be helpful as well. Add there. There is a sutta about two brothers who are monks. One bright and the other, this is very nice, not so bright. Um, The less smart one has trouble memorizing suttas, etc. To the disgust of his smarter brother, the Buddha learns of this and gives the, the discouraged monk a very simple practice holding a white cloth in his hand and rubbing it between his fingers. Pursuing this practice diligently after a time, the monk notices the white cloth has become soiled and he becomes fully enlightened. Can you help me understand this teaching? Seems pretty subtle to me. And I think the best is try it out. <laughs> you know, um, again, I think you know skillful means. Uh, first of all, I, I always, of course, my mind goes to the white cloth. But it is white to begin with, and. Um, Is it different than as we sit here uh, and all of our stuff come up, soiling that cloth over and over? Uh, or, or 
seeing that the cloth was white. You know? And it's a wonderful you know, story that really says that it's not about how... Uh, I've always, of course, related to this. Uh, sort of, I'm dyslexic, and that's been... Uh, you know, really, a learning disability is really uh, uh, what... A question when I remember when I took robes of the Tongpulu Saida, I could not memorize the, <laughs> the um, a lot of the of the Pali. So they had a monk set behind me who then would tell me in my ear what it was I was saying, you know. And it felt really hard because other people could memorize it and I couldn't. But I also realized that's not what this is about. You know, it's not uh, what kind of mind, it's how you see into where you are. And that's, and that's why this is for everybody. It's not for just, you know, one kind of mind. Um, and that's the beauty of it because so much of, I, I, I see when, as Buddhism has come from Asia to the West, it's been held sort of by the intelligentsia in some ways in the artist community. And yet it goes way beyond that. And to, um, you know, uh, this was the Buddha's way of saying that uh, this, is, this is not for one type of people, but for all types of people. When you read about that particular text, it made me think of Joseph Goldstein, because it's one of his favorite texts, and he tells mm. the story. And in the translation, he uses the the second brother is called the Dullard. The this is an old Vic, Victorian <laughs> translation. And um, Joseph had a lot of competition, actually, with his older brother, and a lot of difficulty in his own childhood. But in the in the story, a piece that's also told is because the younger brother, who can't memorize even one line of text. Um, is uh, having such a difficult time. His older brother says, you should leave this community of monks. You are not fit to be a monk and tries to kick him out. And the Buddha hears of this and goes over and consoles him and says, there, there, there's a place for you here in my dispensation and the teachings of awakening. And Joseph's always very happy about this part. It's like, you know, the Buddha consoling anybody who doesn't think they can do it, you know. And then after the um, second brother does get enlightened, it says also that he's not only fully enlightened, but he has at his disposal all of the great psychic powers that a yogi could ever have in India, and goes back and shows his older brother up really good. So. <laughs> I guess this will be the last question for me. You're getting near our time. Hmm. I'm so torn between these two. What is the difference in practice between mindfulness and awareness? And what you hear is that 
various ones of us as teachers or teachers on the first retreat will use these words differently. For the sake of this retreat, we are using the word mindfulness very frequently to describe that presence, uh, uh, attention, openness without judgment that we are nourishing, cultivating, uh, bringing alive from moment to moment. While sometimes we use the word awareness to be synonymous, Another nice use of the word awareness instead is that abiding wakefulness or awareness which is present all the time, which is ever-present, and which mindfulness becomes the gateway to our experiencing. That there is a ground of awareness, that is inclusive of all things, spacious, undisturbed by all that rises and passes. And to be mindful brings us into connection with this ground of awareness itself. There are you. Are you done? Are you? Um, There's another question about emotions and thought, but because we're we're giving instructions on working with emotion, I think I'll wait till tomorrow. Yeah, and there's there's that one. I think you could maybe include in your instructions. You think? Yeah. Um, The only thing from this question, I won't read it out. Yeah is that sometimes things get overwhelming. That's partly the the sense of the question. That everyone, if you are practicing in a sincere and dedicated way, or even if not, um, (laughs) truth to tell, everybody who puts himself in this remarkable circumstance of sitting and walking in silence, and eating in silence, will periodically have experiences arise that take you to your edge, to your limit, that seem overwhelming. Anger, fear, rage, um, grief, and so forth. And um, the instructions are twofold. To be with it as best you can with real tenderness and compassion, because that's part of our human condition. And when you can't be with it, to do that simple practice that helps you return to balance. Maybe it's to get up and go to walk. Maybe it's to lie down. Maybe it's to take a little bit of a walk. Maybe it's to return to the metta. To do something in your body or in your practice that returns you to a ground of balance so that then you can go back and again allow even the intensity of the experience that's arising to be met with some mindfulness and balance and compassion. So thank you all for your kind attention.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.